Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we'll be talking about V for Vendetta. We held a poll asking which four, uh, we selected four net films that are currently on Netflix, asked y'all to vote. The overwhelming favorite uh, was V for Vendetta. It had over 50% of the vote. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine why. why. Yeah, why, what's going on in the world that people would want a superhero protest movie. Um, so we wanted to talk about sort of when the film was released back in 2006 and its sort of initial perception and and why people uh, have sort of latched onto it and, and its legacy and sort of its superhero structure, uh, which I find very fascinating, especially since I think a superhero story is traditionally uh, about uplifting the individual, but uh, v for Vendetta is trying to sort of walk the line of how do you have an individual hero uh, contrasted against uh, the revolutionary whole. It's not just one person saves the day, uh, and yet it is. So it's it's an interesting sort of framework there. And then I kind of wanted to talk about, obviously, why the film feels so relevant right now, uh, especially looking at the work of the Wachowskis. Even though James McTeague is the credited director on V for Vendetta, it's generally acknowledged that the Wachowskis had a heavy hand in the direction beyond just, uh, right. I mean, they, they're, they're the screenwriters, but they also, eh, the direction is mm, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> they the they officially, well, maybe unofficially did second unit directing on it, but but yeah, I think it's gener- It's pretty widely acknowledged that they um, had a heavy hand in the making of this film. Yes, because they so, also. But, what was the thing they were brought in on reshoots for? Was it the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake? It might have been. It yeah. might have been. Yeah, they, that, like, they, they couldn't save that one though. No invasion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but Adam, what what did you remember? So, V for Vendetta was originally released in the U.S. in March of 2006. Uh, what did you? Nope, 2000. The film was shown at but oh, premiered in 2005. In 2005, but it wasn't released into theaters until March 2006. Okay, that makes more sense then, because I, I saw it. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I rented it, and it was under the cloud of the like superhero boom, the second wave. So the first wave would have been Spider-Man and X-Men, and then Batman Begins in 2005. Um, this second wave of, you know, gritty and dark and like Batman Begins was so exciting because it was so grounded and so realistic. V for Vendetta felt like it might be kind of of that ilk. And this was before I had seen it. I had no idea. Um, but it like felt like that kind of movie to me. And I caught up with it at some point. <laughs> I don't really remember. Um, as I told Matt, when uh, you guys voted for this movie, I was excited to revisit it because I didn't remember any of it. The main things I remembered were that the Wachowskis kind of shadow directed it. And there was a very big deal made of the fact that Natalie Portman shaved her head in the movie. Um, there was like a scene where they actually shaved her head. And I remember that was like a whole thing. Um, Cause I don't remember where this fell in her career. Like what movies she was, I think this was around the time she was making stuff like closer um, and whatever yes. she was. Doing. Yeah. She was moving in a more dramatic direction away from things like anywhere, but here. 
Or uh, God, what's the one where she like has a baby in a Walmart? That was that's anywhere but here. Is that anywhere but here? Oh, I think that was where the heart is. Oh, it's where the heart is. Anyway, all these movies blend together. <laughs> they do, but you know, she did Garden State and then Closer, and uh, obviously the Star Wars prequels, um, which exist, I guess. Um, but yeah, this came like so a little before black swan so it was a pretty interesting kind of turning point uh, right? well about four years before black swan okay yeah. black swan's 2010 but go on and and black swan was a pretty huge deal but anyway like she was a famous actress and it was a big deal that she had um shaved her head for the role and that was the extent of what i remembered about this movie i don't even remember my first viewing of it beyond like even when i was watching it like some stuff felt vaguely familiar i remember the finale um but that was kind of it. I think the a lot of the themes and the politics of the film were kind of lost on me when I first saw it. Which is, that's a surprising reaction because they're so on the nose. It doesn't even yeah. try to hide that it's a very political film. And so for me, re, like I, I, for me, when I saw it back in 2006, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. That this film is happening. Like this is a film where the terrorist is a hero. And I think to put that in a, in a proper framework, what you have to sort of look at is, is you have this sort of, this is a post 9-11 film, but it's also really a film that's now where the, the Iraq war started in 2003. This film was made probably somewhere in 2005, released in 2006. It's very much a reaction to the way the Bush administration handled the post 9-11 fallout, which is that they became more authoritarian and the the response was especially to any the bush administration was very much against dissent and like a common refrain was if you are against us you're emboldening the terrorists and so you you know there's and i remember john stewart's like ah they're so emboldenable and <laughs> what you so within that framework wachowski's took uh, alan moore's novel graphic novel from 1982 uh, which was very much a response to the far right uh, he was dealing with at the time, which was Thatcherism in England. And so the Wachowskis sort of transplanted that uh, as a kind of response to Bush era uh, transgressions and saying, OK, if your response to any form of dissent is to label someone as supporting terrorists, then what we're going to do is we're going to make we're going to really lean into the fact that our hero of this story is a terrorist. And we're not going to make any bones about that. We are going to say like he is inflicting terror, but for a political, you know, he is inflicting destruction for a goal. But what he's, what they're trying to do is not saying that like all terrorists are good, but rather forcing their audience to change their perspective and doing it in the guise of a superhero structure. So that V plays like a superhero. He's got a costume, he's got a persona, he's got an insignia, but his goals are far more live in a far grayer area than your traditional superhero. Which is interesting because when I was rewatching it, I honestly had didn't think about superheroes until you just said that when we started recording the podcast here, it didn't really feel like a superhero film to me. It felt like a more like a sci-fi dystopian film. Um, uh, it, yeah. Like it didn't, I mean, I guess, and that's what the graphic novel was written as, like kind of a, a take on superheroes. 
No, I mean, I mean, really? so the graphic novel is by Alan Moore, who didn't even yeah. want his name on this movie, which is funny because the movie's pretty faithful to the book. It just cuts out some of the dumber stuff from the books, like a guy who falls in love with a computer. Um, I would say that like Alan Moore is very much about deconstructing superhero tropes, which is what he did with Watchmen as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for for Moore, he's using I don't think like V for Vendetta is an out and out superhero story, but he's using sort of superhero ideas, the idea of the, you know, costumed individual affecting change in a society and saving it. But then injecting ideas of what does it mean to be a terrorist versus a freedom fighter? What is this Guy Fox myth? You know, what is it meant to represent? What does it mean to, uh, you know, really, again, put a superhero into the post 9-11 framework? I mean, not for more, again, Thatcherism, but for the Wachowskis, that's what they're thinking about. And I mean, they weren't the only ones. I mean, if you look at 2005's Superman Returns, that is also very much a film that is trying to wrestle with how do you make a superhero movie in a post 9-11 world? Uh, where, does a, where does Superman fit in? Uh, but for the Wachowskis, they're kind of looking at it from the perspective of what does it mean for a quote unquote superhero who does have like, I mean, he has like superpowers, like he has an origin story that gives him superpowers, that makes him stronger and makes him, you know, better at able to, you know, enable to do this, but do the things that he does. But also they want to keep, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought here for a second. They want to use uh, that sort of superhero framework as a way to explore ideas of uh, societal change rather than, oh, there's a villain. And if the villain is defeated, then, then everything is okay. Yeah, and it's fascinating because it doesn't necessarily follow a traditional structure, and it, no. it goes to some interesting places. It never really fully reveals who V is. Um, uh, you know, you get like vague notions of an origin story, but if I recall correctly, it's just like this guy came, and then like we gave him the drugs, and then he said he didn't remember who he used to be. Right? That's the idea. Yeah. The I. You know, it's the the film is another thing that I think that's interesting about the film is that it's constantly wrestling with. Is V a man or is he a symbol? Yeah. Because uh, he needs to be both. Uh, and I think the film starts out with him very much being comfortable with the idea of him being a symbol uh, and sort of forfeiting his identity. He, we never learn who he is. Uh, we never learn like, oh, this is he was mild mannered, you know, you know, Jimmy Johnson. And then he one day, you know, stumbled into this horrible conspiracy that <laughs> injected him with drugs. Uh, well, but, at the end, though, we find out his middle name was Robin. Yes. Yes. As a, as a, as a nod to the fans. Yes. Um, but no, so there, there's no sort of, it's not really important, like who he is as an individual. And I think the film, the way the film starts out, he's very comfortable with the idea of him being a symbol and an idea. And which is why you can get away with sort of a, a scene that for some might play silly, but I really like it when he gives Evie the whole monologue using primarily words that start with V, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a theatrical performance that he's sort of taken into and his arc in the film is to try to reclaim some of his humanity and not just leave himself as an abstract idea and sort of trying to walk that balance. And his relationship with Evie is him sort of wrestling with how do I, you know, connect with someone when I have lost all my humanity. Um, because I think the film is very conscious of the fact that if you strip the humanity away from a revolution, 
all you're doing is making way for another fascist. And I think it wanted to make clear that V is not someone looking to depose uh, the chancellor. Um, he's looking or, or to install a new rule, but rather to give power back to the people. Uh, rather than just make himself the figurehead or, and I, again, the, and the film could easily, the story can easily fall into those traps. If you're giving everyone a mask with your face on it, it could easily be seen as self-aggrandizing. So the film has to kind of make the point like, no, this is what the mask means. This is what V means. This is what uh, his relationship with Evie means. And so it has to kind of do that legwork. And I think there are times when the script is kind of inelegant in the way that it does it, but I kind of can roll with it. Like there are scenes of just long monologues of like, I'm going to tell you this whole story, like, or I'm going to tell you this whole story. And then I'm going to explain this whole thing. There's a, like, it really kind of layers on exposition um, and it doesn't really have a good way to do it. But I feel like watching the film, I can't think of a better way. Like I can't be like, Oh, you know, when um, V sits down with Stephen Ray and he's like, here, I'm going to tell you everything the bad guys did and how we got here. Like, there's no real way to like do that in a better way. Like, I guess you could start the film that way, but it would, that would deflate your detective story that you have running as a subplot. So it's not like my favorite script, but I think it gets the job done uh, for what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah. Cause it's only, I mean, it's not super long. It's like two hours and 10 minutes or something like that. Um, but something I was really fascinated by because, uh, another like idea that I had in my head of what this movie was, was it was about anarchy, but watching it again, it doesn't necessarily feel like V is, I know in the graphic novel, he's an anarchist, but it's not like he just wants unrest and then like, go like fuck everything up. Uh, he's trying to depose, he's trying to reform the system. And so in order to reform the system, he wants to dismantle it and get those out of power, out of power. Um, but this could also just be me reading into the film with today's politics in mind. Um, but I, I was wondering what you thought about uh, V's politics specifically. Is he an anarchist? Is he a reformer? Is he um, a guy with a vendetta? How do you feel? Uh, I, would, <laughs> I would say that, the, that V's politics are purposely vaguely defined because I don't think the film wants to necessarily advocate for any singular position um, in terms of, I think it's, it's more, it's not like pro socialism or pro capitalism or, or any sort or even, I mean, maybe it's pro democracy kind of in terms of giving power back to the people, but really it's more of an, it's an anti-fascism uh, anti-authoritarian screed because yeah. the idea is that this, authoritarianism has has seeped into every facet of modern day life and like people just kind of roll with it like that's that's one of the things is that you know this sort of world which kind of can kind of exist alongside 1984 this idea is that there there are recurring scenes where we see that people just kind of roll with it like yeah there are people who like if you're out after curfew they're gonna you know rape you or, or throw or kidnap you or kill you or, you know, do anything like that. But then there are also like families who are like, let's just watch the one network that's on. <laughs> let's just watch the one channel of one show. And like, we'll all just watch that. And like, that's the thing, like people just kind of accept it at this kind of low boil um, authoritarianism that like seeps into their lives. So yeah, there are, there's surveillance, surveillance, there's um, uh, curfews, there's, uh, demagoguery on the airwaves and you know policing about what people can and cannot do but people 
people also have sort of become accustomed to it. And so V is sort of there to kind of shake away the complacency, not to institute a new form of government, but rather to, again, give the power back to the people to let them form it because it's being denied. They're being denied that power um, because of this authoritarian government. And if I could just sneak this in real quick, one of the things I do not like about the film is the trutherism of the story, which is like, they created the virus to cure the virus. And I'm just like, we did, we've seen now that authoritarians don't have to work that hard <laughs> to actually, like, they don't have to be like, we have to cure, we have to make up a virus that we can then cure later so that people will like us. Like you don't have to be honest. Like you just have to lie and do whatever you want and like find an oppressed group and just, you know, scapegoat them. Uh, that's pretty, like, that's kind of what authoritarians do. You don't need to come up with this whole, like, the the the, the St. Mary's virus is a false flag. Yeah. I think that leads you down to, like, conspiracy theory land, which is back into the realm of the authoritarian. So I, that's the one kind of aspect of the exposition that I don't really care for. Well, and false flag theories were running rampant around that time as well. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. For, like, 9-11, you know, truthers. Yeah, but you're right. It does not advocate, but kind of underline like, see, it was a false flag kind of within within the world of V for Vendetta. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like the aspect of I don't know. I like the scenes of the families watching television because it it delivers information to you, the viewer of this world. So you're seeing this is how information is delivered to the people, and yes. and so you see later the power of that when um uh gosh what stephen fry's character um decides to do kind of a satirical take on uh the authoritarian leader um and how dangerous that is you know everyone's laughing at it but he's using this mouthpiece to denigrate uh you know dear leader and you know god forbid he pays the price well and i think that's a great that's sort of a great setup and payoff because what it's hammering home is that these authoritarians rule with an iron fist and yet they're incredibly fragile mm -hmm. that they can't withstand even a little bit of satire that the, that to even joke about them is, uh, is worthy of death. Uh, you know, that that's, and you need to sort of set up that fragility so that you can stress why someone like V with enough planning and enough drive can bring it down. Yeah. And the, you know, going back to one of the things that you didn't like about the film, I also wasn't crazy about the fact, like, so you have an Alex Jones-esque character in this film, which, who was originally a Bill O'Reilly-esque character when um, the film came out, who's, you know, the mouthpiece for um, the government. Um, and I didn't love the idea that, like, oh, he was a military official. It makes the world smaller. It does yeah. sort of be, and, and, the, and the again, that's from the book. The book is like, Oh, like basically you have to, you have to come up with a reason for V to kill this guy. But so there's that conspiracy theory that like he was involved with the, you know, experiments. It doesn't really like, we don't, that's not really a trajectory. Yeah. And, but again, it's sort of, that's the pace of the story and watching V for Vendetta. It's a movie that's trying to do a lot of things. And I'm mm -hmm. kind of amazed that it like, it's a beauty and the beast story. It's a revolutionary story. It's a superhero story. It's a detective story. And so all of those have been sort of mashed together and it still kind of works. Yeah. Yeah. No, it holds up pretty well. Cause it, it feels like one of those scripts that is just like, 
it moves so quickly that you don't have time to like second guess stuff. Like every scene with the detectives, there's they stumble upon some big secret. It's not like you watch the detectives like sitting around like, ah, we're stuck. We don't know what to do. And then it moves on. It's like, aha, but what about this? And then that moves the story. Yeah, they're exposition boys. They're development boys. It keeps moving the story forward and it's fun. Like it's interesting. I, I like the story that is being told here. I think it's a fascinating world and I think it's well told. Um, the kind of like V is in love with Evie thing like struck me as a little strange at first, but the, like, I think it comes together in the end. There is a like a a nice humanity to it um, towards the end because Evie isn't like, oh, I love you too. She yeah. recognizes his humanity. Exactly. Yeah, I think that it it's tough because when you put it within that framework, Evie's story it's trying to do both. It's trying to say like, this is V story and it's Evie's story, but Evie's story ultimately has to serve V's arc, but it wants to give Evie an arc of her own, which is that you've been living, you have suffered under this regime your entire life since you were a child. And you've sort of tried to find a way to live with it and try and, and, you know, find the comfort of this corrupt world and, and trying to make your way in it. And I'm going to show you, that you can't keep living. I'm going to try to convince you that this is no way to live. And I, and I like the fact that Evie kind of, you know, she's, she's not really trying to, there's no sort of love between them in the sense, in the tradence of their traditional romantic love, but she learned, basically it's, it goes two ways. Evie learns to love V as an idea. And by the end of the film has a very kind of generalized love for him. You know, when he's like, who was he? And she's like, he was my, my father and my mother and my brother. And he was you and he was me. Like it's a sort of generalized idea. So for her to go to V is sort of her recognizing him as a symbol that she needs to make her way in the world. But V goes the opposite direction. He's looking at her as a way to reclaim that small piece of humanity that he, that he needs in order to be an effective revolutionary because without it, he is, you know, it's his ideas make him strong and he's makes him able to pull off this plot, but it does, he, he needs sort of his relationship with Evie to give him a soul. Yeah. And it is interesting that he kidnaps her and tortures her for weeks on end. And it's like, ah, but it was for your own good. Yeah. And that's the thing. And I, I, you know, again, I think the film it walks a very it walks a very thin tightrope on how much should you like V, and I think we like V because he's stylish and voiced by Hugo Weaving and has all the good lines. But I would also say that I like that the film kind of pulls up short of being like Evie being like, "Oh, well, that's fine. I learned something." Like she's pissed and she leaves, but she sort of again recognizes him as a as recognizes him as a symbol. Um, but again, it, there are moments where it gets muddled, like when she kisses his mask and like, you know, it's, there are times where it doesn't work completely, but I, I, I like in its broad strokes, I think that it works. Yeah. And I think the, the movie acknowledges and knows that V is a violent character. Like he's not necessarily someone, uh, a flawed hero, an anti-hero, uh, something like that. I think it is a better thing to call him. Like he's not someone who is making all perfect, great decisions. Like he, flat out murders a lot of people. Um, and you know, those people are varying degrees of innocent and guilty. Um, you've got henchmen and you've got um, the doctors who did whatever to him. But you see that his, his 
vendetta is driven by vengeance. And that's a bit of a selfish motive uh, yeah, at some point. Like he, yes, he's working to overthrow on top of the government, but his individual targets are all people who personally wronged him, um, which I think is interesting. And I think the, the movie acknowledges that there is some, some fault there or some imperfection in, uh, um, you know, his manner and his actions. It's not a, you know, like the movie endorses, like, yes, the authoritarian regime is terrible and what V is doing is for the common good, but it doesn't necessarily endorse like everything, every single thing that V did was great. And that's sort of the 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 trick of the film, which is that how do you lean into it that V is not a symbol to be personally emulated, but an idea that's meant to be followed. So that really that V what you're supposed to take away from V is that he's fighting for freedom and that he's willing to sacrifice his life for a free society that pushes against authoritarianism. But I also don't think the film is like, and now we're all like, we're all going to like train with knives, <laughs> you know, like, and no Kung Fu. Like it's not that and get, kind of get his super serum blood. Right. Exactly. Like fast. Yeah. I don't think V is sort of at, Again, that's sort of the push and pull of the story is V as an individual versus V as a symbol uh, and trying to sort of reconcile the two. And because you have to, you have to reconcile it at the end of the story, as we said, because otherwise it just seems self-aggrandizing for a guy to be like, here, I got everyone a mask that has my face on it. <laughs> yes. it could you all wear my my mask and go to the protest and dress like me? I'm yeah. going to be like an inspirational terrorist. Um <laughs> But, like, that's the thing. Like, I mean, the film understands that symbols have a power to inspire. And, you know, certainly superhero sim symbols have a, have a power to inspire. And so V is kind of in this weird middle ground uh, of trying to inspire people, but not sort of be like, and you should, and I guess not be a cult figure, I guess is the, sort of the best way. It's sort of be like, and again, that's sort of, you know, his sacrifice takes him out of the equation. He doesn't, again, he's not sort of, replacing one regime with another he's sort of just tearing down the other one and leaving it to the people to the decide yeah yeah and i think that's interesting and i think he acknowledges his selfishness in in his quest um in terms of you know he wants to be the one to kill all the people that wronged himself yeah yeah and i and, and i think and i also like the fact that he's unapologetic about it you know yeah. he's like yeah i'm gonna blow up a building yeah, I'm gonna. She's like, she's like, did you kill that guy? And he's like, like, do you want me to lie? <laughs> and, he's like, yeah. and he's like, are you? Are you going to kill more people? And he's like, yes, I am. So you know, he's. It's a fascinating character, and I think um, Hugo Weaving's vocal performance is delectable. <laughs> I could listen to that all day. Um, yeah, but, I would love the backstory on that because I know Jim, James Purefoy was originally cast and mm -hmm. shot for like six weeks and then left the production. Yes, uh, and I read an interview with him after the fact where they said something to the effect of, "Oh, like uh, he's, he couldn't comment on it," and they were like, "You know, oh, it was reported that you just didn't wasn't weren't comfortable in the mask," and he was like, "That's a load of bullshit," and he's like, "We all agreed not to talk about it," um, he said, but it was ultimately creative differences. So I don't know what that involved. There are scenes. There are almost certainly scenes where James Purefoy is in them in the movie, and Hugo Weaving is dubbed over uh, the voice there. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. And James McTeague, the director, was this his first feature film yes. after? Okay, it was because he was a. Uh, I believe he was the second, the assistant director of the second unit for the Wachowskis on the Matrix movies. 
Okay, yeah. And then he went on to do the Raven. Uh, no, not the, second uh, unit, assistant director, because second unit would have been Stileski and um, yeah, and uh, what's his face? Yeah, he was an AD. Um, and, you know, he does a, a pretty okay job. I think, I mean, we've seen with like the, with Cloud Actus, Cloud Actus, Cloud Atlas, uh, the Wachowskis worked with Tom Tyquer and divide that up T- in the third. Tickfer. Tickfer, sure, go for it. <laughs> um, uh, but McTeague also worked with the Wachowskis on the invasion reshoots I read. So like they worked as like a trio, kind of like a team kind of uh, mm-hmm. a thing. And he also did Ninja Assassin, which I never saw. I didn't see that either. I don't know anything about that. But he worked on Sense Eight, so I don't think it was um, uh, a thing of like the Wachowskis like overstepping. I think their maybe their philosophy on filmmaking is a bit more collaborative than the DGA would allow. Um, and uh, uh, you know, James McTeague takes top credit. But I do think there. Uh, another thing that really struck me in this film is the coded messaging in here of of the. Um, the transness of the Wachowskis. There's that scene where uh, Evie tries to take V's mask off and he says, there's a face under this mask, but it's no more me than the muscles underneath that or the bone underneath that. Essentially saying like, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable in, in the skin that I am in. I am wearing this mask, um, which, you know, presents to the world how, uh, you know, how I feel. And I think, I don't know, I think that's interesting in hindsight looking, and I know there's there's a bunch of coded messaging in, in the Matrix as, as well, um, you see them exploring these themes um, kind of early on, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, I believe, I mean, the Wachowskis were still cisgendered um, when they made uh, V for Vendetta. But I agree. I think what what the mask, the mask of V in terms of the greater society is that what what the Wachowskis are saying is that in a society that doesn't allow you to be free, to be who you are, you will inevitably wear a mask. Yeah. Even if it, you know, V wears a physical mask, but they make it clear throughout the film that everyone is wearing a mask of some kind. Like Stephen Fry is wearing a mask, you know, to hide his who he really is. Um, those in power are wearing masks to hide their predilections. Um, you know, you know, you're hiding your past, and it's not the film is not saying like no one should have any secrets, but rather you are for being forced to keep these secrets in a society that is not free to let you be who you want to be. And so that's sort of the mask that you're forced to live in when society demands you be one thing, when you, when your heart tells you that you're something else. And obviously that gets hit on more directly later in the film when we learn about Valerie's backstory. Yeah. Which was fascinating as well. I mean, the Wachowski has been doing this since the beginning of their career. And I don't know, I think it's, I think it's interesting because you take a source material like V for Vendetta and you take, uh, you know, any number of filmmakers, they're going to put any number of spins on that. But that's what I love about art coming from filmmakers like the Wachowskis is they're going to make it personal and it doesn't have to be super duper explicit. It doesn't have to be, you know, an exact plot line that's following those themes, Um, but it can be layered in subtextually, which just adds, you know, more, uh, meat on the bones of the story than you know just a, a personal a just just a story of a guy who is an anarchist and is blowing shit up. Um, I don't know. I just I found that very fascinating. 
Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a great article to write or maybe even a great book, certainly not by me, um, about the transness of their movies and sort of because you see it, you know, it comes up again and again with The Matrix and when you see it in here and even in Cloud Atlas, this idea that people can souls, you know, take on different bodies and like different appearances. And so that sort of that notion of the way that of who you are, the essence of who you are. Um, and yet the out, the external, the external, the, the front facing side changes depending on the world that you're in. I saw that one of the criticisms that Alan Moore leveled against this film was that it, it didn't necessarily in showcasing an authoritarian regime didn't necessarily get into race. And I was wondering how you felt about that. Well, I think that's fair. I also think he also said he didn't, hasn't seen the movie, but, <laughs> um, he's right. It doesn't get into race. Um, I think that's that's fair. Um, I think that's an important uh, aspect. Um, I honestly don't remember how much the book gets into race either, though. I mean, the book is, you know, they pared down the book to get it to the screen. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I feel like it's hard to say. I feel like the Wachowskis, in trying to sort of focus on the idea of what makes a terrorist a hero sort of put the racial question off to the side because they wanted to make a thing about the, the us and them in this story is the us are the people and them are the authoritarian government. But I agree. I, I think there could have been an added dimension of how, you know, the, the government in this is their, their thing is strength through unity, unity through faith. Um, and I definitely think the film would have benefited somewhat if they had sort of at least mentioned, even if in passing, of how, you know, attacking minority groups. And again, that's kind of there, like, you know, with what happens with Valerie and, you know, you see, I think there's a brief shot of like a montage of like some um, dark skinned people being rounded up. But the film doesn't get I don't think I agree with more. The film doesn't get all the way there. Um, but I think it it does more right than it does wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it it is, you know, it's set in the UK, but it has this very kind of overt American sensibility in terms of the the specifics of the, um, you know, an extremely conservative government and, uh, you know, with its boot on its on the neck of a progressive people. Well, and I think that's that that is a reflection of England in the 1980s yeah. with with Margaret Thatcher and sort of the, you know, I mean, uh, the kind of conservatism she, you know that she was pushing was also you know I, I i don't think they had to make too many changes even though it's from america to england um i feel like the the core of moore's book didn't have to be changed too much because of the conservative ideals that are right wing and and kind of lean towards fascism it is just so fascinating how this film was made about an entirely different administration and a different president and different times, different climate and feels. I mean, I was watching it with my fiance and we like after certain lines, we like looked at each other and were like, holy shit, like this just feels like it was written today about these protests, about people rising up, um, you know, and pushing back. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the line that, you know. People shouldn't be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Yeah. You know, like it's, it definitely, I, you know, it's funny. I, I saw this film and then there was a protest happening right down the street, a Black Lives Matter protest. And I was super pumped to go to the protest after watching V for Vendetta. And, and we did. My wife and I went, went to the protest because it gets you in that spirit of being like, we can push back 
there's more of us than there are of them. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it sugarcoats the costs, no. you know, that it doesn't try to be like, you know, everyone will just, you know, if you give them a well-reasoned argument, everything will be okay. <laughs> like at the end of the day, no, you have to blow up parliament. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it gets a little muddled with the, the virus subplot and mm-hmm. the human testing um, and pulling out outliers, but you know, outliers is, that's something that we talked about on the Westworld podcast. That was an entire idea of Westworld season three was that outliers in society were being removed from society for the betterment of society. Um, I mean, these themes are unfortunately evergreen, but uh, it is interesting to see this story resonate so well and so deeply right now. Yeah. I I'm, I'm very glad that our listeners picked this film for us to watch because I think it's shown that it has a timelessness to it of kind of great dystopian fiction. And again, sure, yeah, it's an adaptation, but I think the Wachowskis did a very good job of adapting the story, which not everyone can say when it comes to Alan Moore. Uh, Sometimes you get the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Listen, I enjoy the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I don't. It's it's fine. A film so bad, (laughs) Sean Connery was like, I'm out. I'm out of acting. I am no longer acting. (laughs) That movie is so weird. Like, what is it even about? (laughs) I don't know. I was so excited for it, too. Because I was like, oh, man, all these characters. I was really excited. Like, oh, it's like X-Men, but with literary characters. The book is good. Yeah. Yeah, no, the film is trash. How Um, do you feel about From Hell? uh, I don't like From Hell as a movie. I think it's kind of... I actually don't like From Hell as a book that much, either. I've tried reading From Hell. I don't really like the artwork that much. um, And I feel like it's a little too full of its the the way more i think was so bent on getting it historically accurate that i think it kind of throws up a wall between him and the reader that it because now you you feel like you're reading something that's not inviting you as a reader but more to show off that he did the research and that's fine but i don't know i had trouble getting into it as a book as a film uh the film feels kind of weak um it's not the worst of the more adaptations but it's also kind of like it's very forgettable. That's fine. I enjoyed fine as yeah. a, as a uh, not youngster, but as someone who was fascinated by serial killer movies, I found it interesting, but yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. I saw it in theaters and now I've, I've, I've never had any desire to go back to it. Sure. So, but yeah, I think V for Vendetta holds up very well. Um, if you, it, it's, you're going to, if you watch it, you're going to feel like, Oh yeah. This, because I think that's the thing when these sort of, especially in America, when these sort of, um, when we see the authoritarian leanings and, you know, we can get into debate about who's more authoritarian, the Bush regime when this came out or, you know, the Trump regime right now. And man, I'm just losing, we're losing so many listeners right now. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, YouTubers just, ah, fuck you guys. Um, <laughs> but no, I would, I would say that like, it's a story that when authoritarian tendencies start cropping up in government in a very clear and perceived way with governments that are using fear to divide their populace, to keep them under control, a story like view for vendetta is rendered uh, more potent. Well, and that's the thing. That's the thing that really resonated deeply with me. And you can argue uh, if you want the authoritarian nature of uh, uh, the Trump presidency or the Bush presidency, but, it's it's that fear, that idea of stoking fear, that idea that your brand is fear, and fear is what gets people to vote for you. Fear, not 
not compassion, not humanity, not um, understanding, not bridging divides, but just fear, just making people scared of other people or things or uh, you know, caravans that don't exist or don't don't uh, pose any serious threat. Um, and that's what I found really interesting watching this is is that fear is a tactic that uh, has been used for centuries because it works. Um, and you know, seeing the mouthpieces that stoke those fears and and um, drum up those feelings, um, and like you know, I'm the one that will pr- protect you if you vote for someone else. You won't be protected. These bad things will happen to you. Um, so trust me, um, which is just nuts. Well, and also that that I like that Viva Vendetta eventually is like this message doesn't hold. It eventually people grow tired of it. You can't scare people forever. Like yeah. at the climax of the film, you have John Hurt giving this big monologue on TV, and no one's watching. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, talk about setup and payoff. That was. Uh, a really fantastic thing that uh, I had forgotten from the original, uh, the first time I'd seen it, but I was like, Oh, this is cool. Everybody's yeah. out in the streets. <laughs> they're they're now watching this yet another fear, hate mongering uh, propaganda speech. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> any hoosers, any hoosers, just some nice. Well, I will say though, that like, you know, like there are films that, you absolutely should watch at this point in time um, that are going to be tough to stomach, but that are necessary stuff like Selma stuff like 13th. Um, I did find V for Vendetta, however, resonant in, in this time period. And I have been reaching for comfort stuff also just really entertaining. Like it's a very compelling, fun, entertaining film. Um, Yes. It will make you think about what's going on in the world. Uh, It won't make you forget about what's happening. Um, But it's also just, you know, an entertaining ride. It's very compelling and interesting in and of itself, which I think makes it um, a success. I mean, I think we've seen filmmakers try to translate like political, socio-political themes into blockbuster filmmaking and uh, to varying degrees of success. And I think by and large studios just aren't allowing that to happen very much anymore. Uh, You know, I think Black Panther is probably the last big example of something that was wrestling with really tough, uncomfortable ideas with a budget that big. Yeah. I'm curious though. I mean, especially with all these brands coming out in favor of like black lives matter. And that's not to say that they, that, that their support necessarily matters in terms of like, I could give a shit what Disney thinks or star Wars thinks about black lives matter. It's more when you look at it holistically, all of these brands have done the math and they're like, our consumer base is going to be people that support this movement. This is not a controversial thing. We can be on the side of this. Yeah. We'll lose some, you know, we'll lose other people, but they're the minority because our research tells us so. Yeah. And they're all working from the same research. Yeah, which I, which is interesting. Uh, you're right. I think I'll be. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, the success of Black Panther should have been that, like in and of itself, that should have been enough to be like, oh, you can make uncomfortable storytelling on a blockbuster scale, and people will still show up and love it and enjoy it. Like Black Panther doesn't end with like racism solved. Like no. African American tensions are fine now. It ends with there is work to be done and doing mm-hmm. the work. Um. I, I I don't know. I find that fascinating that that movie was just such a massive success, but that wasn't enough. Like that wasn't enough for studios to be like, okay, yeah, uncomfortable stuff is is okay to go. Um, so I mean, stuff like Green Book still wins Best Picture over Black Klansman and Black Panther. So 
people like yeah. a happy ending. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. People want like let I think sort of daily existence can be stressful enough. Yeah. And people want something that comforts them and says, "Oh no, you're good. You're okay and you don't really have to work that hard." Um, and I think even to some extent V for Vendetta tries to I don't want to say it lets people off the hook, but it's, you know, it's a rousing triumphant call to arms rather than, you know, all the people get gunned down in the street. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not Les Mis. It's not trying to say, you know, you're going to lose a lot. It it shows that there are losses along the way, but it's meant to end in triumph. Um, and whether you get to that triumph is is another question, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, let's move on to, to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Um, well, speaking of uh, comfort food, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to watch something that's not even necessarily about anything. Um, and now that Community is on Netflix, I've been watching it. Uh, and I like I loved Community when it was on. I watched the first few seasons, um, but I never finished it. And so it's been kind of fun going back and rewatching it. So for one, like kind of watching that evolution in those first few episodes when it kind of like the pilot is pretty traditional sitcom -y, Um, and then Dan Harmon's weirdness kind of starts to get in. Um, but for another, like, it's just really, uh, kind of punk. Like it's a very strange show. Um, and it's kind of crazy that it was on the air. I've been listening to podcasts and interviews and stuff with the cast now and talking in retrospect, how they were just like, you know, their set was like in the basement under the set of 30 rock. Like they were just uh, kind of not the cool show that was happening at the moment. They never had enough money. Um, all of their scenes are inside that uh, school, but I think it's a testament to Dan Harmon and that shows writers that you have an episode like the first dungeons and dragons episode, which just takes place in a study room, but feels epic because of the music. Joe Russo directed that episode. Um, but it's also about like, they start like I had forgotten the reason they start, that Dungeons and Dragons game is because they're afraid Neil is going to commit suicide. Like that's very dark for a, a sitcom on NBC, but it's, it's these people that, you know, are broken, that are imperfect, that are extremely selfish. Um, these themes that you see again in Rick and Morty, I think they're recurring in Dan Harmon's work, um, trying to be better versions of themselves, but not necessarily throwing, throwing themselves away in the process. Um, but then also you just get crazy episodes like the paintball episodes are really good. And the comedy in that show, like that show is so funny and it's just so strange. Um, so it's been a blast for me to go back and rewatch it. Uh, and it's better than I remembered. Um, I, I watched the gas leak year, which is the year that Dan Harmon was fired. Um, and it just like, if you need like a prime example of like w the importance of like a one person's voice on a show, although I think Dino Stamopoulos left and then the Russo brothers left during that season as well. Uh, Cause the Russo brothers got hired to do captain America. Um, so it was missing some voices, but like, there's just something off about it all. Um, and then I had never seen the season that Dan Harmon came back. I'd only watched the first couple episodes. So I'm in currently in, season five like the back half of season five which i've never seen before so i'm just kind of enjoying watching that and and revisiting it and just seeing this like murderer's row of like you know you look around that table and like donald glover and allison brie are like massive stars who you know run their own shows now and stuff um so i don't know it's a lot of fun i highly recommend it it's good for the soul but also like not it's not like painting this pretty picture like everything is perfect and everything is fine um but it's still comforting in a strange way. 
So. Yeah, it knows how. I think you know it knows how to sort of balance the darkness with the light. Yeah. Whereas I think Rick and Morty is very much a bleak show <laughs> that is with glimmers of light. Just yeah, the brief, the briefest flickers before everything goes horrible again. <laughs> well, um, which is another... fine because you're in the animated realm and you can kind of yeah. get away with it. Well, and that's another interesting contrast as well. I don't know if you've watched Solar Opposites, which is Justin Roiland's other animated show on Hulu. I've only seen the first episode of that, but it does have a kind of like strange kind of gross humor of Rick and Morty, but it is more compassionate and more humanistic and more positive about humanity. Um, and I don't think Dan Harmon is like just a terrible human being, but I think he's been upfront about like he has demons and he's been working through these demons himself. Uh, yeah. And I think you watch that happen through his art. Um, but yeah, Rick and Morty can just get really just aggressively mean sometimes. Yes. Um, I will also say one of the fun things to watch if you're going to go and do a community rewatch is how clearly they hate Chevy Chase yes. and how much that just pops up in the writing. Yeah. So I listened to, uh, I would highly recommend, I think you can find it under, um, uh, Jesse David Fox's, uh, good one podcast, but they did a vulture panel reunion last fall, I think. Um, and Dan Harmon was there in the entire cast, except for Donald Glover was there. Um, and Dan Harmon said that they like, at a certain point, he just started writing down lines that Chevy was saying on set just cause they were so batshit insane. Um, and they talked about how like there were three different stand-ins that were there. So it seems to me that Chevy would come in and shoot his close up and then be gone and how they found like unique ways to use the stand-in. So Chevy didn't have to come to set. So like the Pulp Fiction episode, you'll notice Pierce is in the Gim costume, which is so that Chevy Chase wasn't ever on set during that episode. So just different ways for them to, to do that. And I think on the, the recent reunion they did all together, they were talking about that first dungeon and dungeons and dragons episode and how, or maybe it was on the there's also a, a podcast that Joel McHale and Ken Jong are doing. Um, but essentially, like it was a very uncomfortable episode to make because that was the first episode of that of that first season that was really born out of the conflicts on set. So like the storyline of that is that Pierce feels left out and turns into a villain. And that was based on what was happening on set. And uh, on that podcast, the actors were talking about how it was unco- it was an un- uncomfortable episode to shoot because it was digging at some raw feelings that that cast was feeling at the time um and i don't know it's just really interesting to see that kind of poured into the art and how art reflects reality in those ways and then the increasingly cruel ways dan Harmon writes pierce into just really embarrassing terrible situations well i mean that even happens early on my wife made a she's a big community fan and she pointed out that you know, I think it's in maybe as early as season one. There's the episode where they go to Abed's dorm room to mm-hmm. make fun of Kick Puncher, and oh, yeah. uh, Pierce can't come up with any jokes, so he hires a writer's room to be funny for him. And yeah. it's like to me, like that's the joke being played on Chevy Chase is that you're not funny. You had funny writers. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a funny show. I just not laughed. Uh, it's a funny in like a mean mean spirited way show not unlike Mick, rick and morty yeah. um but also ultimately very sweet like i just got to donald glover's final episode which is just yeah. like strange and bizarre but also really sweet and emotional so it's a yeah. special show and it holds up tremendously well um I, you know it, it got treated kind of like a third class citizen to 30 rock in the office when those were kind of big and parks and rec as well um but it holds up really, really well. It also just kind of, it feels like a victim of its time in terms of like, yes, 
people could buy movies on iTunes by then and there were DVDs, but DVDs were kind of on their way out and streaming was on the rise, but community like didn't have that stream. Like I feel like if like the first two seasons of community had been put on Netflix, people would have been like, Oh, this show is great. And would have really supported it in a way that would have been more visible for net or for NBC. Yeah. I was a DVD collector collector at the time. And I bought the first season of community because I, wanted to rewatch it a lot and i did um but i was also doing the same thing with like 30 rock and Mad Men at the time mm-hmm. too yeah same it was kind of at the height of that but it was also at the very tail end of like that was the i, th- I can't remember who the president in charge of nbc was and this is in that new that book about the making of the office that just came out but about how whoever came in towards the end of the office's run was just like all right we got to get rid of all these weird comedies and bring back like friends which just was not <laughs> make it make it 1994 <laughs> yeah. again through science or magic science or magic yes perfect 30 rock joke um yeah that's essentially i think what happened and and that's why you have community kind of petering out and going to yahoo screen in its final season yeah. and I, I don't even think anyone involved with community wanted to do another season at the point they were all just exhausted because i remember reading an interview with Alison Brie years ago where she said she would cry on set all the time um it would be terrible i mean dan Harmon told this story on that uh at that vulture reunion how do you remember the episode with kevin corrigan with the drama teacher who yes. like, like turns out he's not actually a drama teacher and yeah they're, like, they're all these out. twists were this hoodie a time hoodie so dan Harmon said what happened and he was explaining it with chris mckenna on the panel who went on to co-write the spider-man movies um like they had they had written the story up until annie and um joel McHale's character i'm blanking on his name um discover that the class doesn't exist and it's a drama teacher but they had not written anything else and the episode started shooting (laughs) and so they were just like spitballing and staying up all night and like coming up with things and they had to call standards and practices because there was they were going to use guns and dan said the standards and practices lady was like can it be about gun safety and dan said sure why the fuck not because we don't know what else (laughs) so they were like yes we'll make it about gun safety he was like it may as well be about peaches (laughs) We have no idea. And Alison Brie was on the panel and she was like, this explains so much about the show. Because the actors would be on set for like 14 hours a day, just standing around. <laughs> but like, that's kind of how the show was written. And it turned out brilliantly. But like that episode was not plotted out or in any way. Which is <laughs> funny because out. Dan Harmon gets so much attention for his little time circle. Yeah, his, like his little his, his story circle, which makes you think like, oh, well, this must all be plotted pretty yeah. well. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, the story circle is more about like the character arc has to end here, but they don't know how like how, plot yeah, how to get to okay. it. So, mm. but yeah, stuff like that. It just uh, it's a it's a one in a million show, and it yeah. holds up really well. Uh, for me, my recently watched is a film that's currently streaming on HBO, um, but I'd heard great things about it for a while. Is Josie and the Pussycats? And you're like Josie and the Pussycats from. From the Archie comics is Josie and the Pussy. Okay, all right. But it's really good. Uh, it was directed by the people who did uh, Can't Hardly Wait, which I think is a kind of a 90s gem. Uh, and the plot is that um, this boy band called Du Jour uh, vanishes in a plane crash. Uh, and they were their music was being needed to send subliminal messages to people to buy things. So they need a new band to replace Du Jour. And Alan Cumming, who's this uh, evil record manager guy uh, for working for the label, uh, he finds Josie and the Pussycats. And he's like, come to L.A. and, you know, we'll make you stars. But then they want to implant messages 
into their into their music unknowingly to the Josie and the Pussycats uh, to get people to buy things. And so the film, it, it's very lighthearted and silly, but it's also like a full frontal assault on mindless consumerism, which you wouldn't expect from a Josie and the Pussycats <laughs> movie at all. And like yeah. Parker Posey is the big villain. Like she runs the record label and she's delightful as always. Um, but it's all about like, these sort of corporate entities that exist to get you to buy things. And like, that's what the film is railing against. Like every, every scene in the film has like product placement. Like one of the characters goes to take a shower and there's like the McDonald's logo in the shower for some reason. Um, It's just, it's very knowing about what it's trying to do. And it's, it kind of just got away with it. Um, I think because no one really expected anything from a Josie and the Pussycats movie. So they kind of just did whatever they wanted. And the film wasn't a hit when it came out, but it's earned this cult classic status. And so now having watched it, I'm like, yes, it deserves that. I mean, it's not like a perfect film, but I was very charmed by it. I think it came out around the time of Spice World, and so I think people wrote it off as like, oh, yes. it's going to be like Spice World. Yeah, Spice World, I think, came out in 2000, and Josie and the Pussycats came out in July of 2001. So, okay. uh, yeah, people were like, oh, okay, girl group, rock band, whatever. Um, and again, based on an Archie comics thing, you know, it's it didn't seem like it would have much substance. So the fact that it, it does is a welcome surprise and uh, makes the film a delight. Yeah, Josie and the Pussycats is great. Um, is it on HBO Max? Is that how you watch it? It was on HBO. It was actually on HBO, but now now it's on HBO Max as well because it has all the HBO content. Yeah. So yeah, uh, ch- definitely check that one out. Nice. All right. So for the past couple months now, really, we've been asking, you know, oh, you know, vote for these movies that are currently streaming, and we'll talk about one of them. But next week, we finally, actually, this Friday, we finally have new movies coming out uh, from major directors. So we're going to do two podcasts next week. One will be about the work of Judd Apatow and his newest film, The King of Staten Island. And one will be about the films of Spike Lee and his new film, The Five Bloods. So two podcasts next week. Uh, we hope you tune in for that. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. Hey, little chico, Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply.